in-depth conversation about mental health and addiction in the first responder space. We're joined by your hosts, Austin Pedersen and Josh Adams. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode, uh, episode four here of No One Fights Alone. I am back with my co-host, Chief Josh Adams, uh, and I think that today we're going to to go over something a little bit different, uh, not necessarily talk about you know wellness uh, per se, but uh, something that we hope every officer gets to, uh, and that is retirement. Uh, and so, Chief, talk a little bit about you know what what goes on with first responders when they retire, like right before they retire, maybe their mindset um, going into it. Um, I'll actually rewind just a hair further back to that. I think most of us, uh, when we get into this type of work, they talk about, yeah, you, you can retire at 20 years or 25 years or depending on the, in the workspace you come into. And, you know, when you're young and in your 20s, you're like, who cares? You know, you don't think about, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. You're, you ran into this because you want to do it. So you don't even want to look at the finish line yet. And even from a financial sense, I think there's a lot of <clears throat> that too, where you know you start out, it's like, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. Yeah. But then as you start to, you know, buy a home or, or get married or have children or whatever your case may be and have some more <clears throat> financial ob- obligations, the, the money factor starts to matter more. And you know, and then that, that's where we slowly, very slowly start to start looking, okay, well, what does this look like in the long term that way? Anyway, fast forward to, yeah, that let's call that the, the fourth quarter of our career, whatever that may be, the 15 to 20 year mark or whatever, where we're starting to look at those, the, the retirement possibilities. And, you know, I think the first challenge people have is, well, what am I going to do? So if I retire at age you know, 45, what am I going to do with the next 20 years of my life um, for uh, finance, for insurance, for, you know, probably those things most, uh, but then, okay, well, what am I going to do with myself? Yeah. You know, my, the, this career is very much like, in some senses, almost like a marriage and, you know, a guy goes, when somebody finally retires, yeah, we have the we have the party. We, you know, give them their service weapon. We, you know, have a lunch and sing kumbaya, and then it's almost like we sign divorce papers. Yeah, you know, we we're going to take away your key to the building. We're going to take away your credentials. We're going to we're going to take away your uniforms. We're going to take away all of those uh, pieces or representations or symbols of what you were um, that authority that you had in the in the community and stuff it's gone and we're going to replace you just as quick as we can with somebody else and move forward and you know i doubt that there's very many police departments out there that are like okay you're retired go away don't come back but what is the invitation to hey stay engaged with us and you're welcome back in the building and we want to hear how you're doing and and, you know, all that wealth of knowledge that we uh, gained through you, um, you know, that, that it comes back. So anyway, yeah, I, th- I think that psychological aspect is probably the one that's hardest for most people because 
you know, we 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 all know how to scrap. We can figure out how to make ends meet. Um, you know, a fellow can retire and go work at a Home Depot or something like that and get a full time job that he's benefited and and the wages are probably enough to offset, you know, between the pension and, the, and his and his income that he's kind of breaking even. So uh, I think a lot of people, it's not a huge financial thing. I don't think it's a huge medical thing, but I think the biggest challenge that a lot of people have is, okay, th this was my peer group, my peer family, and now they're gone. Yeah, well, it's a, it's like a sisterhood, brotherhood type type thing, yeah, right? So. Yeah, and so they, they form these close relationships, and you know, I, I think it's pretty natural when you know, you get disconnected from that. If you're not seeing someone every day, it's hard to stay in contact the same way, you know. And and so can you give us a rundown kind of like what the, at least in Utah, what the pension numbers look like? So what is it, like 50% at 20 years, 70% at 20 years, and then goes up or? Yeah, so in Utah, they, uh, you know, 20 some odd years ago when I got into this line of work, you can retire as early as 20 years at 50% of your highest three years. Um, so I, in other words, the, the cumulative average of your top three highest paid years would be what your annual pension benefit would be. But also back then it was, there was uh, medical insurance and there, there's a lot of other things that just over the years have been stripped back. So the, the, the only thing that's remained constant is is that uh, Utah retirement system 20% or excuse me 50% of 20 year constant and then it would go up 2% per year every year you stayed so you're 21 you got another you know 52% yeah and, and so on and so forth and there's actually in Utah there's no cap to that so I mean a fellow can stay around 40 years if he wants to and does that happen yeah yeah, there's there's some guys that, uh, in fact, I, I uh, I'm aware of one who's I believe he's in year 42, and I'm no mathematician, but it occurred to me that he hit the 100 percent payout rate at year 40, so you know 20 turning into 40, and uh, so I don't know. In my mind, is he losing money at this point? And you know the other factor that. I know I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here too, is, is when you crunch those numbers, you know, every year you stay is one less year you're actually going to collect. Yeah. So, um, for instance, about year 18 for me, I met with my uh, financial planner guy and we were kind of looking at different numbers and what my pay rate was then and my age and what, you know, we figured how this is about how old you're going to live to be and, and so forth. So I, I looked at it, I believe it was kind of like, okay, at age 40, if you're going to live another 30 years to age 70, you retire on time 20 years. Over the course of uh, my life until I were to pass away at age 70, the, the payout would be like $1.2 million over the course of that post-law enforcement life. Yeah. If I were to stay until 30 years and still die at age 70, my payout over the course of that shortened post-retirement life would be $1.2 million. So in a sense, a lot of people, we don't know what we don't know when we're going to die, but if we knew what we were going to die, you could quickly calculate out that, hey, you're really not going to come out money ahead by staying 
excessively long. Like I, it makes perfect sense for me to people that hit hit that twenty year mark and be like, I still feel good and I'm contributing and I don't want to go yet. Or that hey, I've got a my youngest kid is fourteen. I got four more years of you know insurance and and, mm-hmm. and this that and the other before I I've got quite the level of financial freedom to go and do something completely different and, and stuff. So there's a lot of practical and productive reasons to stay beyond that 20-year mark. But uh, from a hard costing, if we knew how old we're going to be when we actually are going to pass away, you could probably mathematically eliminate the reason to stay much longer than the first chance you can get off. Yeah. So kids college medical bill whatever maybe that's a that's a huge reason for people to stay yeah and there's different incentives like you thought they offer kind of you can get different levels of lump sum payouts you know one time payout that reduces your monthly overtime but you can get you know i don't know maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars or something like that where it's like hey i'm gonna pay off my house and now i'm gonna and then i'm gonna have a reduced pension amount but i'm not gonna be paying a mortgage so yeah. you can people that are really into finance and numbers and stuff they can they can use these tools and stuff to figure out what's my best option. Um, but yeah, there, so there's that. But in 2011, I believe, there was a move, and this is coming on the, you know, the recession that was going on at the time and everything like that, where it's like, hey, the funding of our retirement system is a concern. And so what they did is they created what they call a tier two retirement system. So people like me that are, you know, we're in the system before 2011, our tier one meaning we can get out of 50% at 20 years. Tier two was, um, and I might be wrong because they've tweaked it a couple of times, you had to go 25 years to get 35%. So it was a huge hack into the retirement benefit. And I, I believe, and being, you know, in a different position at that time, I believe that part of the back theory behind that was hey these people coming into this line of work they don't care that much anyway about that back end thing right now so you know until they're not really going to catch on to this this hose job until they're kind of embedded anyway mm-hmm. um, I don't think that's what's ultimately worked out I think there's been um, a lot of people that have looked at that well hey you're, and, and it's funny because I don't think they're looking at hey it's a reduced money benefit i think it's a lot of people right you're gonna make me work you're gonna make me do this five years longer yeah retirement. so and so you put that together longer less money and they've since tweaked it to where the money thing has come around a little better um, i know that there's a a movement every year to try and bring that back down to the back down to the so everybody's a tier one but i believe you know having been on a couple of discussion committees and stuff like that the, the fiscal note attached to making that account work again at that same level is really high. And and that the state, the legislature and so forth would, would rather than it being like state money that bails that out or, or corrects that gap, they would in turn, they'd turn it back to, you know, the different agencies, the different municipalities do it. And that's tough for, you know, a city or so forth that's already, you know, economically, you know, running its thing and then being solvent all of a sudden like, well, hey, your retirement benefit for each police officer is going to need to go up a, a few thousand dollars a year per guy. And 
and so there's there's a there's still a very much an ongoing money issue on what that what the pension is going to look like for a tier two type of a person by the time they actually hit that mark. So no, nobody, there is no tier two people that have obviously arrived at retirement eligibility yet. So um, it's a it's a work in progress. But I would also say that that's one of the impacting factors on on part of our recruitment too is when people feel like, hey, you're actually getting it. And, and especially in this day and age, um, the different workforce philosophies we have, people are looking at, hey, if somebody else is getting a better deal, I'm going where the better deal is. Uh, yeah. You know? and, yeah. And so you've actually had a lot of cities and, and counties and stuff come in and be like, hey, well, we're all, we realize this tier two thing is, is not nearly as equitable as a tier one. So we will bring in more money on a 401k or something to that effect to sweeten the overall retirement benefit in theory um, over time. And I think it helps sometimes, but the funny thing that that piece has done is that's made some of the people that were in, that are tier one and were, you know, in, in an agency and going well, well, when these ones open this up and they start all offering this increase in a 401k, you'll have now have guys jump from their established position to go there because like, hey, I'm going to get an even better because I'm going to be a tier one guy and I'm going to get a higher 401k benefit and everything like that. So, you know, they're, they're money ahead too. So, and then it leaves the other agency they left with a gap and nobody wanted to fill that gap necessarily because they don't have for that same level of competition. So it's really turned into kind of a wage and benefit war the last several years of, Hey, we need, we need police officers in, in, in the state. We're down anywhere from four to 600 at any given time here in Utah. And, you know, just to train, that number of them, we're talking probably two years worth of academies all over the state. Yeah. And that doesn't factor in attrition and things like that. So, you know, if I hire an officer from another agency, I'm not helping fill that. The, the tide is not rising. I'm just taking from another place. Yeah. I'm leaving them with that opening. And, and so, you know, does it have something to do with retirement and the benefit? Yes, but also... No. So when they <clears throat> when they switch over to a different city, that tier one can go with them. So it's coming from the state instead of the city at that yes. point. Or okay. Yeah. So Utah. <clears throat> the unique thing about Utah is our pension system is statewide. So we are all um, there's a first responder pension system. There's a firefighter pension system. There's a and then there's one that's more for like general you know teachers and clerks and, and all that good stuff um so the the ours is unique to to you know the, the police retirement system and the, the fire department system theirs is a little bit different um arguably better but it's it, it's more factored on the kind of work schedule they have yeah and the number of hours they work and so forth. Well, like 24 on 48 off or, yeah, or kind of stuff. yeah. I, can, I tried to figure it out one time it was well, I think they've done like the sleep studies. Uh, we actually talked about it when when I was in Indianapolis is of those sleep studies of like the swing shift and everything like that, and just the detriment that it has on your brain and yeah. you know the the those fire guys and the swing shift for police just they have it a little bit rougher. Well, I, I, I don't. I, I never would have thought that because yeah, in my mind, it was those guys are getting paid to sleep, but then having 
done a lot of work with with Chateau and meeting officers that are gone, or excuse me, firefighters that are really dealing with those things. Theirs is in a sense worse because it's like you know. A, a cop can go work his graveyard shift, but then he knows he's not going to get called back into work for the next 10 hours, 12 hours, what have you. But those guys, it's like they're, you know, if they're working 48, it's, you know, and, and they average out how many runs a day they have and stuff, they're not getting sleep, you know, and it's, it's very, very patchy. So they're not having sleep cycles, um, you know, and so they start having those, those uh, you know, the, the hormonal differentiations and stuff and then one of the biggest challenges that they all have is you know they work a 48-hour shift and then they go home and they're supposed to be functional like it's their day off and they're yeah. like well i need at least a day to try and recalibrate yeah 96 off and and that yeah. creates family problems and stuff like that because between the you know the the physical fatigue and then sometimes the emotional fatigue from whatever was going on during that last rotation they're not they're not in a very good space yeah so, yeah, it affects yeah. them very much. Well, they don't sleep right. Like no. they, you cannot get them for weeks or months sometimes to just go to bed at 10 p.m. and wake up at six. Like yeah. they're they're sleeping for two hours, up for two hours, whatever it may well, be. Well, and, and that's exactly it. You're hitting the spot on. What what's kind of been described to you most is it's like they don't have the ability to relax. Yeah, hypervigilance. Like whether I'm going to sleep, if I know I've got 10 hours or so that I'm not going to be interrupted. You know, that's usually where most of us, you know, you flick on the tube and, and you watch the show until you doze off, whatever the case may be. Where theirs, it's like, you know, this hurry and try and grab some sleep and before the next bell goes off. And and and, and that's nonstop, you know. And trying to deliver a high level of care to, to patients when it's like, okay, you know, here's the frustration. I just got woke up. I'm going to help somebody who's, who's, whose ankle hurts or something like that. Take him to the hospital, whatever. And it's like, this jackass just pulled me out of bed for nothing. What feels like nothing. And I just lost sleep. And, but they're going to, they still, you know, give that high level of care. Even though it's like, hey, the, the, the better we do, the more long, the longer it's going to take. So, you know, that, that dude's ankle ache or whatever just took two hours of my sleep away from me. And so there's the fatigue and then there's the frustration of I can't get ahead. Well, two hours of sleep for 20 years. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's that. I think that's the big thing is like at the beginning, I think it's a, they can manage that uh, and maybe make up for it. But year after year after year, it, it just, how can it not? Well, and I agree. I think I think one of the things that uh, all of us, when we're younger and stuff like that, our bodies are healthier, more natural energy. Whatever, we're less dependent on 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 sleep, or fatigue doesn't present itself as abruptly in our lives. Um, but yeah, when you start screwing around with your cortisol and melatonin balances nonstop, and they don't know how to counteract one another to wake us up and put us to sleep anymore we're screwed yeah well then if you start mixing like nightmares in yeah you know then you're gonna have a whole nother ball game because yeah. you're you're waking up and then you're awake too or you just didn't sleep sound you never hit rem ever or one of the one of the uh, 
frequent things that I, I, I hear a lot about too. We discuss a lot at length with folks that are in the process of recovery is alcohol will make me fall asleep faster and it will help me from having those dreams. And so it's, you know, the, the point and purpose of, of their drinking is to, uh, for lack of a better term, is to make their body crash and their mind crash so that they can get whatever. But again, that's not even most of them. The alcohol prevents them from feeling a, uh, from experiencing a REM cycle like that. Yeah. The, 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 the hormones and stuff like that that induce that don't occur. Yeah. It's, and, but they want that. That's yeah. the, that's so the not goal. Dreaming, yeah. Um, because they're trying to avoid dreaming. Yep. I mean, do you do you suffer from nightmares too, as well? Not as bad. Like I used to have them uh, a lot. Uh, I was therapeutically able to work through some of those issues that uh, that uh, haunted me, so to speak, or whatever you want to call it that way. And then for me too, I uh, I got diagnosed with. I did a sleep study and got diagnosed with. Uh, sleep disorders and stuff like that so that they were able to say well hey this is what's wrong with your body so this is the biological component and i think that's where we we uh, are really missing on some things too is hey when we talk about the lack of sleep and and the nightmares and everything like that they usually interface with one another though the 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 lack of peaceful sleep is an environment for more of the the nightmares and, and stuff like that and the nightmares interact with our ability to have peaceful sleep. And so, you know, for me, it was is being able to medically find out, well, here's how I biologically am not sleeping correctly. So we worked out the biological piece. And, and for me, one of them was just severe sleep apnea. I had no idea I had. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with the, <laughs> it was funny, the sleep start I had, they're like, yeah, you're waking up on average 51 times an hour from not breathing. Oh, wow. So basically it's like, you're in a boxing match all night with your own self. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I remember very clearly you'd wake up some nights horribly fatigued, you know, in the morning, like I, I would have been better if I would have stayed up literally having slept all night and feeling like I'm coming off a grave. Um, and so yeah, finding that biological repair, if that exists for some of us, um, then we can, I think we can attack that, that, uh, the mental issue. But I think on the flip side, not in my case, but I think there's other people where it's the mental one that precedes the, the physical one. It's, it's that the inability to relax is because of the, if you will, the fear of what am I going to dream about? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's where people are like, okay, well, if I, if I down a fifth right before bed, okay, I know my body's going to crash. It's a depressant. And I know my body, and I, and I don't have to worry about those dreams anymore because I've basically intoxicated myself, immune from having the dreams. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, it sounds to me like you're you're pretty much recommending everyone should probably do some type of sleep study that's been on the job for for a certain period oh, of I time. Think so, I mean, I, I think when we when we stop and look at it, and, and one of the goals, long term goals, I have is hey, you know, when we when we talk about fitness standards and fitness for duty and stuff like that, what about fatigue? Why is fatigue like not part of that? You know, you might in your in your dock in a box annual physical or something like that. You might have a doctor. How do you sleep? And you could be like, you know, because he's checking a box, and you could be like, well, I sleep like shit. And he's like, well, what? You want some Ambien? 
you know? And so we're like, sure, why not? You know, and, you know, everybody has their own stories to tell about when they're taking pharmaceuticals to knock them out. I mean, most of them are more of a hypnotic than they are an actual relax your body and fall asleep. Well, yeah. I mean, Seroquel is used in higher doses as an antipsychotic. So it's used in smaller doses to help people sleep and then, you know, bigger doses. So, so yeah, it's, it, that's exactly, it's not, it's not shutting your body down the same way melatonin does yeah. in, in, in a hormone level. It's basically stunning your brain and letting everything else relax. And, you know, for some people it's, it's a counterpoint where, yeah, they're actually walking around like they're hypnotized or whatever, and, you know, eating a jar of peanut butter and three in the morning and all else is going on. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think that one of the things I would like to see when we talk about, okay, we have physical fitness standards and, and for my department, many departments, we have either an annual or uh, something to that effect, physical. Why do we not do the sleep study stuff? It's really fairly basic. Um, you know, I think we think of, oh, a sleep study means we have to go to some sleep center and plug 50 wires into my head and, and stuff like that. And mine was... Um, the first piece was just having a pulse oximeter on my finger one night. And then from there, like, yeah, let's get some more information. And then it was this band thing around the cage of my respiration, pulse oximeter, and a cannula. And from there, they're like, yeah, dude, you're screwed. You know, I didn't need to go to a sleep center or anything like that. And uh, So they just gave you a CPAP. Yeah, basically. so order up the equipment, mm-hmm. get used to it. Took a few weeks to really get used to it. But now it's, I, the, the difference is night and day. Yeah. Like I, when I hit the road, that thing's coming with me, you know. And so when you talk about differences night and day, what what is that difference? Do you feel like like that I slept? Yeah. Like I woke up this morning. I put that thing on at about eleven thirty last night, and I woke up this morning at seven, and I felt like I slept all time. Yeah. So you just basically you have more energy. It's probably gone a roundabout way of like your your diet's probably better. Mm-hmm. Uh, your feeling of restless, you know, whatever maybe is better. You probably get to adjust less caffeine. You know, is that does that sound about right? So I think I, I think I, I think I, and you emotionally feel healthier, having more energy. So the so the the um, the energy to do the right things is more, and then the desire to subsidize for not having them is less. So yeah, the caffeines and and, and stuff like that. And you know, for my case, it was. It was as drastic as I went from where there were frequently I was take I, I had a prescription for you know here when you talk about here's the medical fix to everything and the pharmaceutical effect Adderall so I went from pre uh, apnea diagnosis to where I was taking Adderall in the afternoon to get through the day to where I haven't taken it at all yeah they just diagnosed you with like adhd or something like that to do that i I already knew i had that but 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 basically the whole and and a lot of it you know focus and stuff like that but in reality what it was for me was it was fatigue i mean i was too damn tired you know and so you know and in those days it's like okay adderall and three or four monsters a day it's like how long until your heart's gonna pop? Yeah, so bad for your heart. Yeah, so bad. Yeah. And uh, versus now, um, yeah, I sleep good, and, and and part of it is we have to we have to we have to put in the effort too. 
um, you know, sleep hygiene and stuff like that. Where it's like, hey, I'm going to do the right things to to try and sleep well. Like, if we need to wear a CPAP, or if we if we need to we need to be more diligent about going to bed earlier and things like that. Giving ourselves that chance. But yeah, it 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 did a tremendous thing for me to where yeah, I got more energy to exercise, more more desire to to be more fit and just feeling better overall. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's some of those things you said, like be diligent about going, trying to go to bed earlier. All the blue light stuff that is going on, like cell phones, TVs, all of that stuff. Like, I don't think people realize how much of an impact that actually has on your brain and allowing your brain to calm down. Yeah. Like, put your phone away, turn the TV off, and then try to go to bed. Because I think it's something like takes anywhere – from 30 to 60 minutes after the blue light is off, so phone and TV, for your brain to actually rest and your eyes and, and everything like that. And I think, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I'll sleep with a TV on or, you know. Oh, I'd love to. I just, it's just recognizing that that's not ideal. Yeah. 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 But when you've done it for 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, those habits are hard to break, but then you wonder why you don't. Yeah sleep the same like they've got all these apps i mean they have everything these days to like measure your rem sleep like how you act like what time you actually get in rem and then when you're like sleep like you can just do it through your phone and your apple watch these days yeah yeah it's cool i've i used i i used uh i've got an apple watch now but uh what's the other fitbit oh yeah so um and I was actually part of a sleep study. Um, they issued us Fitbits, and so I went to it. It's like I, at night when I was going to bed, I'd take my Apple Watch off and I put the Fitbit on because the Fitbit one was the one that was recording the crap for the sleep study. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty cool to get the feedback from that, as far as you know. And it's not, I don't know that it's uh, an exact science, but it gave you some really good ballparky stuff. And then you know, and I was, con- I was contrasting that with the you know the numbers and stuff off my off my CPAP. I'm even opening up right now. Look at my. I mean, it tells that alone tells me a lot of information about my sleep. Does it give you those REM numbers and everything, or is it, it just? Give, it doesn't put out the REM numbers, but it, but it gives me information about, uh, um, like last night. Hell, hell yeah, I scored one hundred percent last night. Uh, seven hundred seven hours twenty eight minutes of usage. My mask states sealed on the whole night. So, and I had 3.6 events per hour. So it, it came, it's, I'm down from 51 to 3.6. So that's, that's pretty good. And the, I, the number that just shocked me there was you slept for seven hours and 21 minutes last night, or at least had the machine on for that long. Yeah, and it, it picks up, it, and what it does is, so it starts off barely even kind of on, but as you fall asleep, basically as I start to induce apnea, it mm-hmm. recognizes it. And. Uh, increases the pressure, if you will. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking more along the lines of like everything that you have going on, all of the stress, and you can still sleep seven hours and twenty minutes. This way, yeah. 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 Like, what what do you think you were sleeping on average five years ago? Four hours. Three to four. Yeah, and then just wow, yeah. that's a that's a big difference. Yeah. Twice twice as much sleep. It is, and that's the thing is, it's like I. You know, and, I, and I'm not, I'm no, I'm no perfect angel. I mean, we're sitting here talking, and I'm, I'm drinking a, a, a white monster, which is, you know, God's nectar. 
<laughs> but that's the problem is, is I'm not even I don't even know that I'm really drinking it for the for the caffeine content is it's like I kind of got addicted to the flavor yeah you know it's like they need to come out with a caffeine free monster yeah they do taste good you know? yeah I'm I'm a rock star man myself, but so, yeah, you know I mean uh, that's that's part of it. it's like well hey if if I could get away from the flavor or something like that I probably well probably drink one a day yeah one one a day well I've been in your office before where you got a fridge full of them depending on how tough the day is probably depends on how many you drink uh, yeah but it's also you know people come in and and they're talking and you know and they're all a bunch of cops and stuff like they're drinking the same shit yeah. so. Yeah. You know, they know they know if they're gonna come in and have a conversation with me, they're welcome to crack one open. Yeah. Well, Chief, as always, it was a pleasure. Uh really appreciate you getting on. Uh, I know that we started off talking about retirement, but I think we had a really good com- conversation about sleep. Well, I think it just naturally turned into what it needed to because, you know, sleep is one of those things that I don't think people know how much it actually affects their, their daily performance. So I appreciate you coming on. Um, we'll we'll get together next week. Uh, have a pretty fun episode uh, with a friend of yours that you grew up with that has turned into uh, owning one of the bigger treatment centers in Utah and, and works with uh, tons of veterans. So next week we'll be focused a little bit more on veterans and kind of what they deal with and what they go with, go through. So, Chief, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to ChateauRecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First responder trauma counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.